Thanks for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. Don't forget our upcoming B21 lunch panel at this year's Southern Baptist Convention in New Orleans. There are still tickets available. You can find those at Baptist21.com. At the panel this year, we'll talk about the most pressing issues in the Southern Baptist Convention, and you'll hear from men like Albert Moeller, Danny Aiken, Juan Sanchez, Jarrett Stevens, and with at least one more panelist to come. You'll also get a hot chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A, books, and good conversation around the questions you would want to ask about all things Southern Baptist Convention. So please make plans to be there. Again, you can get tickets at Baptist21.com. Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast. I'm Jed Coppinger, the lead pastor of Redemption City Church in Franklin, Tennessee, and one of the founders of Baptist 21. Baptist 21 has conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. And today on the podcast, we have Pastor Mike Stone, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and a candidate for the SBC president this year. Um, Mike, Pastor Mike, thanks so much for being on the Baptist 21 podcast. And Jed, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, let's start with the most obvious question. Why are you running for the SBC presidency this year? Well, first of all, I love the Southern Baptist Convention. So I'll say right at the outset for uh, concerned people or people who are critical, who are looking for a president that will bash all things SBC. That's not who I am. I celebrate so much of who we are and what we do as Southern Baptists from the work of the International Mission Board NAM Church Planting, uh, six top-tier world-class seminaries. We probably do disaster relief as well as anybody else. There is so much to celebrate uh, about what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. So I'm not the guy out there bashing everything, but I also have some deep concerns. And so I'm not the uh, Pollyanna guy either who feels that if you raise a concern or um, you know have an issue with something the SBC is doing, that that you should be marginalized or uh, you know set to the side. So I'm grateful for all the things that we do as uh, Southern Baptists, but uh, I also do have some concerns primarily related to the unsustainable trajectory that we're on financially, uh, related to uh, some of the concerns we have with the sex abuse reform, and uh, would love to talk about those things. Uh, I do value the historic precedent of allowing a sitting president the customary second term I value that. I think that's very beneficial, generally speaking, to the health of an organization like the SBC. Uh, You know, a president will typically have some burden on his heart, some initiative, whether that's an evangelistic focus or whatever. And uh, it takes some time to unfold that for the convention. And so, you know, two years is is a good thing to afford a president under normal times. But some of the questions we may get into will reveal that I believe that we're facing some existential threats. These are not normal times. This is not the time for a status quo nuanced leadership. I believe we need some clear distinctions to begin heading in a different direction on some of the things uh, that are really facing our convention. So because of that, I really feel like even though it is not typical, uh, I believe the time is right. Quite frankly, I don't believe that we have the time to wait uh, on a couple of very important issues. And so uh, when some men contacted me from across the country asking me to uh, pray about receiving a nomination in New Orleans, I uh, of course, met with all the people that you would, my wife, 
closest friends and counselors, deacon ministry staff here at the church, and obviously feel the leadership of the Lord to move forward. Uh, that's what brings us to this conversation today. Uh, sounds sounds great. Yeah, I was going to ask. That's one of the things you hear is about the president issue, and you know, it being the first time really since the conservative resurgence came about. Other than when w- our friend Wiley Drake, uh, I think, did it one year, um, and uh, without there being a major controversy related to the president to step down. Uh, so that really makes this kind of a a unique presidential run. But there's some other factors that go with that. Um, that other people, and I'm sure you've heard these things as well, you know, it, I think it's the first time that we've had someone run for SBC president who, I, I can't remember if you if if you sued the ERLC or if you sued Russ Moore. Russ Moore personally. Personally, but in it, for stuff he did as an, as an entity president, again, and I think, you, and you withdrew that. Yeah. Um, I know that I feel like that having that there with all of the litigation issues that if let's say that went through would have contributed to a problem that right now is a part of the problem you're trying to end with the you know unsustainable I think is some of the things you're speaking to when it comes to that how, how would you you know when you when you think about the lit- litigation issues as someone who's publicly you know sued and that kind of thing with all of our lawsuit issues right now how yeah, first can, of all people thinking about those issues just kind of make sense of that for you yeah, first of all, uh, that lawsuit was not against the ERLC. It was not against the Southern Baptist Convention. It was against an individual. And quite frankly, my goal would not have contributed to some of the problems we have in the SBC. It would have helped to resolve them. What I was looking for, looking very forward to the discovery process of that suit to just get to the truth, because I believe that much of the unsustainable trajectory we're on is because we allowed ourselves as a convention of messengers to be woefully misled by a disgruntled former entity head. I'm not mad at him on some personal level, uh, but I believe that that's the thing that put us on this unsustainable trajectory because we have allowed uh, now outside voices, at that time inside voices, to portray the executive committee specifically in the Southern Baptist Convention generally as a convention of churches at the national level that has covered up systemic sexual abuse. And I don't believe that there is any evidence uh, that a single case of sexual abuse was covered up uh, by the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention or the executive committee. Uh, I would also point out that being named in the guidepost report and some Baptist press uh, articles that covered that, uh, I've had lawyers from across the country uh, contact me about wanting to take me on as a client to sue the EC and the Southern Baptist Convention, and I have declined that simply because I do not want to contribute to the idea that cooperative program dollars or other mission dollars are paying uh, for litigation and certainly paying out settlements. Uh, so uh, while you know some critics may not give any credit for that, the reality is I have turned down uh, opportunities to pursue litigation like that uh, simply because I don't want to be a personal harm or a financial harm uh, to the work of Southern Baptists. I've given the last 30 plus years of my life uh, to the cooperative work that we do uh, as Southern Baptist, but uh, there there's a misnomer out there, especially on SBC Twitter, that that lawsuit was against the Southern Baptist Convention, or that CP dollars would have been used in that regard, and that's just simply factually inaccurate. Gotcha. So speaking of the cooperative program and our cooperative mission, another issue that that's come up, and you've heard this as well, has been 
you know, I think this is the first time someone's running for president that the year before their run for president gave zero to the cooperative program. Um, the first time you ran, I think that you guys actually increased your giving leading up to your presidential run. Um, whereas in this situation, I believe you escrowed it because of concerns or something like that. Um, how, how should, you know, what, how should we think about those, that the zero cooperative program giving leading up to this year with the cooperative program, obviously being so central to our cooperative mission. Yeah, absolutely. I've been a cooperative program champion and for the entirety of my pastorate. When I served as the president of the Georgia Baptist Convention 2017-2018, I actually put together uh, a task force to study the long-range health of the cooperative program here in Georgia. Uh, at that time, we, when I was serving as president, Georgia was the leading contributing state convention through the work of uh, the cooperative program. We've always been kind of neck and neck with Alabama. And uh, I took some great uh, solace in knowing that during my presidency, we edged them out at that time. And so I have been a CP champion. Uh, some of the fluctuation over those years, even going up to my presidency, were because of just the way the deadlines and dates for reporting, uh, as we sometimes would give weekly, sometimes monthly, sometimes quarterly, sometimes large lump sums that came in at the end of the year that might not make it onto that uh, that year's report. So I think the safest way to look at it and the, the fairest way to look at it is over the 21 years of my pastorate. I'll celebrate 21 years next month as the pastor here at Emmanuel. And our 21 year average, including a year of zero, is just under 9%. A 21 year average, not, not that's just not just general giving uh, to various causes. That's actual cooperative program giving, just under 9%. From a small town uh, church, got about 4,000 people in our very rural community. Uh, we've given just over $2.6 million through the cooperative program. And that doesn't, that doesn't count all the other missions giving that we do as a church. But because of our concerns over uh, things like the guidepost contract, things like this unsustainable trajectory related to paying using missions dollars, whether that's coming through sin relief or whether it's coming directly through cooperative program funds or through cash on hand that the EC had in reserves. Uh, my church is not interested in using sacrificially given hard-earned missions dollars uh, to pay liability claims and legal settlements for things that, that I do not believe, and our church does not believe the Southern Baptist Convention should be claiming financial and legal responsibility for. So in light of that, until we had some of those concerns addressed, we began escrowing a portion of those funds and giving the others directly to state and national entity causes. Last year, even though we had zero of technical cooperative program, and I, I do believe that that is a fair uh, accounting, we did not give anything through the cooperative program. Uh, so that's a, that's a reasonable question and a fair assessment. We still gave around $100,000 uh, to Baptist causes, including uh, making sure that our International Mission Board did not um, lose any money. Uh, so we just figured what our uh, IMB uh, allocation would have been by the time we sent our regular CP gifts through the state convention and then the way it's divided through the national CP allocation budget. Uh, but we just gave directly to these Baptist entity causes uh, around $100,000. Uh, that's just to uh, Southern Baptist and Georgia Baptist causes. My church, like most churches, also gives hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, the, the dollar amounts may vary based on the size of the church budget, but in our context, sure. uh, we give hundreds of thousands of dollars to uh, outside missions causes. 
but we did not feel that we could give in a way that uh, sent money through the executive committee the way that the cooperative program uh, would do, because we have concerns about uh, not only the way the money is being spent, but quite frankly, from my from my viewpoint as the former chairman of the executive committee, sat then on the credentials committee and have been involved in some of the highest level meetings, I have concerns that we are doing things in our uh, through our resolutions, through the actions of our executive committee, as well as some court filings that we have that is that is putting us in the direction of having uh, ascending and descending liability, where we're beginning to suggest that there's a collective responsibility that our individual churches have to pay for things that happen in other independent autonomous churches. And for that reason, uh, we determined to just give what had been our cooperative program money just through designated giving that uh, coming out of the GCR task force, we would call great commission giving. So I, I would just say two things. First, I, I put a, a whole podcast out on my personal pastor to pastor podcast dealing with this issue. Uh, so if Southern Baptists are looking for someone that doesn't want to support Southern Baptist missions, I am not that guy. Uh, we have been heavily invested and involved in Southern Baptist missions. But secondly, if you're looking for someone that will just turn a blind eye to some of the uh, the ways that I believe we are unwisely uh, dealing with this issue and not being good stewards of these missions resources, I'm not going to be that pastor either. Uh, I'm not going to lead my church to invest the resources in that, nor as the president with the limited but real powers of the president would I encourage your church's missions dollars to be spent on those matters either. So one of the things that, you know, inevitably comes up in these kind of conversations is, especially as it comes to the issue of escrow, we're starting to see more and more churches do this, depending on who's in leadership at a particular situation or time. So let's say you were elected president. It's not hard to see that it's more likely that there'll be some people who say, oh, well, if he did that this way, now we're going to do this. And we just kind of have this back and forth between different segments of Southern Baptist life that I really do think could could hurt Southern Baptist mission. And so, I, you know, how do you speak to that? If you were elected president, how would you speak to the other side? Not that there's just two sides, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I would say that that is the right of every individual autonomous church. And one of the reasons that churches who have the concerns that I have and that our church has have gone to this issue of escrowing is because we don't feel there's anybody at the national level actually listening to these concerns. And so one of the ways that you mitigate that is to actually listen and uh, hear the concerns of churches who are uh, on various sides uh, of these issues. Uh, but uh, our, our church is just not interested in partnering with groups like Guidepost. The defamation that they have published against me in particular, that's a hard sell. And I deal with that in the podcast episode uh, that I referenced earlier. And uh, perhaps you could put that in the show notes of, of this podcast. But that's a hard sell when to take to a business or finance committee meeting that your convention has defamed you, that they sit on exculpatory evidence of it and won't publish it because they think it would make them look bad uh, for some reason. That's a hard sell in a church like mine to say, let's just let's just keep sending uh, money after this when our when our leaders won't even engage in a phone call. Uh, to talk about some of the challenges that we have. So one of the ways that I would seek to mitigate that is create an atmosphere where we actually do have those conversations. And we just don't turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to people who have real legitimate concerns and have shown themselves over a history, a long history of wanting to be involved and invested. Uh, so I think that's really the key is to let people know that their voice 
is being heard, their concerns are being heard, and that, that we're addressing those things. Now, in, in my experience, and I haven't interacted with all of them, and you, you know, you've mentioned SBC leaders not willing to take a phone call and those kinds of things. It seems like, a, you know, a lot of these guys are, are pretty available. Has that not been your experience when, that, that's when it not, comes? Yeah, that's not been my experience uh, at all. Uh, as I reference, and I don't want to make this about my personal uh, past in this, but as I have stated to pastors that I've met with, I mentioned my past experience because of my commitment that it not be your future. Um, there's there's provable defamation about me in the guidepost report and in subsequent articles produced in Baptist Press, and they will not have even a fraternal conversation about it. I have had numerous emails not even replied to, and when I finally did get a reply, it was a decline to even have a conversation about it. There are people all across uh, the national convention who are aware of these things that will not engage in that conversation. Hmm. Further, and I don't make this as a personal complaint, but I'm saying it's an organizational issue. Uh, two years ago at the Nashville Convention, uh, I was uh, I led on the first ballot, and then uh, Dr. Litton was elected roughly by a vote of 52 to 48, and uh, not a single national leader uh, has reached out to hear those concerns of of uh, at at all. Not a single phone call. And I would just say to the pastors listening to this podcast, you you could not properly shepherd and pastor your church if there was a non-doctrinal, non-fundamental issue in your church that passed by a vote of 52 to 48, and you make no overtures, not even a single phone call to somebody that represents that 48%. And so, um, no, my experience with uh, many of the national leaders is, is, is exactly the opposite. I'm grateful, uh, Jed, that you've not had that uh, experience, but but mine has been exactly the opposite of what you describe. Well, I was speaking of just kind of the you know issue, just the fracturing. You know, it sounds like yeah. I mean one of the things you're talking about. One of the things we're all aware of is it seems that um, uh, like there there's more and more fractures um, yeah. amongst Southern Baptist life. It's harder to understand exactly where everybody's coming from. People are uniting together in ways that used to be enemy. You know, it's just. It's an interesting time. Uh, if you were elected president, how would you seek to unite us as a convention? Well, well, one of the things that I had committed to, even on my schedule, <clears throat> going back to the Nashville convention, uh, I'd set aside the first week of August uh, of that year with plans to invite the other three announced candidates. There were four candidates eventually nominated that year. So if I were to have been elected, I wanted to invite the other three candidates to bring two or three uh, brothers, perhaps a sister, depending on the um, uh, the situation, that shared their concerns from the different tributaries of Southern Baptist life. Each of the brothers that were nominated in Nashville all had different concerns or emphases that they would have uh, brought to the table. And my desire was then, and I would do the same thing today, is uh, to try to bring just leaders to the table. And uh, oftentimes statements come out of those kinds of meetings <clears throat> where you can just talk about uh, the things that we agree on and and what we want to move forward with. So my my process of leadership, whether it's in my church, my local association, uh, our state convention, and the national convention, is just to get leaders to be willing to sit down and have a conversation, uh, to come to the table and uh, and fellowship and and try to come to some understanding as to what uh, what we need to do moving forward. So that would be my commitment uh, moving forward to help bring people uh, together. Yeah. One of the things that uh, that you you've mentioned a couple of times is related to 
guidepost and the abuse task force, I, I believe is a very different day. But when you were EC chair, that's when that's when guidepost was first hired. You were a part of that first hiring. Is that correct? Uh, I was not the chairman when they were hired, but I was, okay. I was still a member of the EC. Okay. It's obviously a lot's happened since then um, with the report and everything going on. Um, what would you say, hey, these are my main concerns about the current task abuse for uh, abuse task force. Uh, and if you were elected, how would you plan to change uh, change the direction of where things are going? Well, one of the things I think we have to do is change the tone and tenor of the conversation. Um, it's interesting that people who share some concerns are often viewed as the ones that are strident uh, and um, perhaps not loving. But just bluntly, I'd put my Twitter feed against some voices on the other side of this issue seven days a week, twice on Sunday. Uh, I try to speak with love and grace toward those who hold different views. And one of the things that we've got to do, and I think in some ways we've got to do this fundamentally so that we can have an actual conversation and brotherly uh, or brother to sister discussion uh, related to these issues is just treat one another with grace and with kindness. For example, uh, from the very beginning of dealing with this issue at the national level, going all the way back to February, <clears throat> pardon me, of 2019, if you hold a different view or suggest a different approach, you are mischaracterized and attacked as not caring about sexual abuse. And we have an SBC cancel culture, especially on social media, that if you share a different view, you are ostracized and vilified. I, I'll cite as one of the more recent examples. When the Florida Baptist Convention recently took the unprecedented action, uh, only precedented by the fact the Ohio State Convention had done it a few uh, days earlier, but the Florida Baptist Convention Executive Board said that if we continue to partner with Guideposts, they're going to reallocate their cooperative program giving and negative, negatively designate around the National Executive Committee, which, which, by the way, what we've done in our church was just a forerunner of what two state conventions uh, have talked about doing. Uh, Jed, within minutes of them posting that, the entire Florida Baptist Convention was accused by by pastors in the SBC of suborning and supporting pedophiles, not being concerned about the molestation of children, re-victimizing abuse victims, simply because they had a different approach about the kind of corporations and the kind of partners and the kind of direction that we ought to be taking on this issue. So one of the things that I want to do is to help tone down the rhetoric that it's okay for us to have differing opinions about how we think this matter should be approached. We don't have to accuse one another of not being concerned about the molestation of children or the abuse of other vulnerable populations. So number one, we've got to change uh, the tone and the tenor of our conversation. And uh, secondly, there has been from the very beginning a, a mantra and an atmosphere of believing all accusations and treating them all as they're true unless someone can prove that they are innocent. Not only is that not consistent with the American legal system, I know this is not a legal system, I recognize that, but that itself is based on uh, biblical principles of dealing with evidence and accusations. The idea that anyone can make an accusation against a church, and then we're going to have leaders put that church in the headlines of their regional and local newspapers. We're going to have their names published in the national media and call upon them to prove that they didn't do something. Uh, that, that is not a biblically tenable uh, posture for us to take. But the, the idea of hashtag believe all victims, uh, that is just not a biblically sustainable approach. 
The Bible still says in Proverbs 18, 17, that the first to plead his case seems right until his neighbor comes to question him. I think we also have an ecclesiological issue when at the national convention level, we are claiming and beginning to claim responsibility. And with that responsibility comes liability for horrible actions, egregious, sinful, wicked, illegal actions that occurred, but they didn't occur in the executive committee. They occurred through bad actors, individual people, and individual independent autonomous Baptist churches. Our current task force has uh, now a former member. He's still serving as an advisor. But our current task force had a, a then member posting on Twitter that, that we need to recognize that every individual church in our convention has collective responsibility for things that happen in any other church. That is a, that is a legal, financial, and ecclesiological nightmare that our national coffers and our national convention should take unto itself responsibility for actions that occurred in an individual autonomous church. So these are some of the things that have been of great concern to me. Further, uh, the recommendations from guideposts that have been widely talked about at this task force level of creating a credibly accused database, um, deeply troubling to me. I am in favor, have always been in favor, of a published database of those who are convicted or those who have confessed uh, to a crime. Oftentimes, those confessions would have been in, in civil litigation or some other type of interview or inquiry. Perhaps the statute of limitations had passed from a criminal perspective, so they would never be on a uh, sex offender database You know that, that mm -hmm. state governments uh, perhaps would publish. I am absolutely in favor of cross-referencing those convictions and those confessions with anybody that might have any reach into Southern Baptist life, if they're a graduate of one of our seminaries, known to have ever served on staff of a church in cooperation with the SBC, known to have ever been an identifiable volunteer, perhaps a youth Sunday school teacher who also confessed or was convicted. I have always been and continue to be in favor of that. But when you look at the idea that we would publish a database of people who have been accused, even credibly accused, it it, it it leads us invariably to the question, who defines credibly? By what standard? Who gets to determine if that threshold has been met? And uh, so far, it seems like we're going to allow outside third-party investigators from the trauma-informed community to come in and make those kind of determinations for us. And I think that that is, uh, first of all, uh, the idea that we would do that, um, I think, is un an unscriptural approach to dealing with accusations. And I believe over the long haul, it's going to be an unsustainable approach uh, because I just don't think that's the direction that we need to go. You know, on that, the um, you know there are, there are a number of people who who feel that tension. I, I think on the credibly accused category, that fourth category, that are aware of maybe situation where someone's been falsely accused, and I think most of us are also aware of the reason why it's there, which is there are people who some can just wiggle past, you know, certain kinds of categories. We're all aware of those kinds of things. And, and so you feel the tension, I think, in our. In, uh, and and uh, Jed, hear me. I, I do feel the tension in that, which is why I do not um, feel the need or the compulsion to attack personally those who feel we should have a credibly accused database. I do feel the tension in that. I yeah. also think it's fair to acknowledge that in this 
explosive age of the internet and social media, et cetera, it's, it's not very realistic that a church that would be doing their due diligence to find out if their potential candidate for a pastor or some staff position uh, has ever been convicted or confessed. If, if you Google their name, search for them through social media, it's not very likely that somebody has been what we would call credibly accused, and there's nothing about them out there on the Internet. And uh, these are some of the reasons I don't think that this is a case that if we just don't do a credibly accused database, that there's no possible way that a church could find out uh, that information. And this is so troubling. Uh, the, the, The deep challenges with having a credibly accused database is why there's talk right now that we may hear from the task force, uh, their recommendations going into New Orleans, that they don't feel we should proceed with a credibly accused database. I would just say that even if they change course on that, a part of the reason is they've not been able to find anybody except guidepost, as my understanding, that would touch it with a 10-foot pole. Uh, there, are, there are other corporations that operate in this, uh, in this arena uh, that uh, have already looked into the, the challenges of a credibly accused database. There, there's a reason uh, that there's such opposition to this, even from, uh, from the legal community, the financial community. And I think we may very well see, uh, perhaps even by the time this podcast posts, that our own task force is coming back saying that a credibly accused database is not something we're going to move forward with right now. Hmm. Would, so would that would that alleviate your concerns with with the task force work if that was removed? It would not simply because um, the fact that it's only being uh, withdrawn if that recommendation is ultimately withdrawn. It's only happening because of pressure. It, it's only happening because they're the the reports are uh, that they're finding difficulty with somebody who would manage that database for them because people who operate in this sphere recognize uh, the challenges with doing that in a in a fair way in a just way. I don't want to make it sound like a, uh, as a liability issue that it's just about money. So let me be clear: obviously, people are infinitely more important than financial resources, but there is a reason. Uh, that this type of approach is a huge liability concern because it, there are so many challenges to do it in a way that is fair. And as as God's people, we ought to be willing to say there's there's there are a lot of challenges in the way to do it in a way that is just and that is right and that is true. It's, it's not just that it's not sustainable or tenable, but it's not just. And um, the challenges with that are are great. So to your question, would that alleviate my concern about the direction that our leaders are headed in? Um, Perhaps slightly, but not ultimately. For the same reason, uh, if this task force announces they're wanting to step fully and finally away from guideposts, they're only doing that because of the pressure, including financial pressure, that they're receiving from state conventions and major leaders across the country. Uh, They went through their uh, interview process and announced in February from the task force that they were recommending to the credentials committee that they were going to use guideposts. And they did that with the full awareness of what Southern Baptists were going to think about that. And in the days immediately after that, Jed, the biggest defender, at least the most influential defender of that decision, was our current president, uh, who took to Twitter and talked about why this was uh, should be acceptable to Southern Baptists. And I'm not suggesting that our current president is in favor of the LGBTQ agenda. Not at all. That would be grossly unfair uh, for me to suggest that our current president or any leader in the SBC feels that way. 
And I, I do want to be clear on that. I've heard some suggest that, uh, but I think that's unfair and I'm not going to be unfair to my brother. But he didn't feel that it rose to the issue uh, or wrote that this issue rose to the level that we would not partner with Guidepost. For that reason, I had people immediately say, well, Mike, do you want to give them some credit for backing away from Guidepost? It's hard to give the kind of credit that I'm talking about. When an organization like the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention only back away from partnering with an organization like this because people have challenged and threatened their pocketbook, uh, I'm looking for some leadership, and I would seek to be a leader that you don't have to write blog articles about and you don't have to put financial pressure on to try to get them to make the kind of decisions that are consistent with the values that we have as Southern Baptists. Well, let me let me just ask you. As you know, as as you think about these issues, what would you say to someone who says, listen, on the one hand, I hear you saying, listen, no one will listen. They won't listen. I've tried. You know, no one's listening. But on the other hand, when they do respond, it's well, it's just because they got pressured. There's no you know, it's you it's you don't get any credit for listening in that situation. Now, I don't know a lot of, you know about a lot of the things I do know that Marshall Blaylock, who Southern Baptist. I mean, who's leading that that effort? Very fine he's a, man. He, he might be one of the few guys who's doing as much traveling as you are, you know, and get and yeah. getting around to the different places. Yeah. I know he was down there. I'm sure you're aware of all that stuff. And I know him a little bit. I mean, he's a a pastor. He he cares about what people think. I mean, he is he is without guy. He's a great guy. Absolutely. Um, and I and so I just think like um, it feels a little bit like uh no one's listening. And then when they when they're working hard to listen, then it's there's no credit for listening and. Yeah, and here's so here's, with, here's with the 40, difference with forty seven thousand churches and all of the leaders and all the different things to move forward in a way. It feels like we, we'd want to give credit in some ways, wouldn't we? Yeah, here's here's the distinction, Jed. What I was talking about earlier that no one seeks to listen to. That's just about doing the right thing, making right decisions, and going back to the Nashville convention. The idea that there were there were concerns about some directional issues with the Southern Baptist Convention. But if the only reason that someone is willing to return your phone call, listen to you, or move in a different direction is because of financial pressure, that's different than somebody that just won't listen to you because they don't think that your concerns are valid. And that is a, that is a very fundamental distinction. Uh, so, um, uh, Well, I, I mean, I think we both would agree. Marshall isn't a guy that only cares about financial anything. Like, he's a guy that wants to get it right, or at least I, I think we would agree on that kind of thing. I, so, like, I don't know him effort. personally. I don't know him personally, but I don't have oh, any okay. reason to doubt that or or disparage that. Everything I know about him uh, would be a fine man. And what I'm talking about is the process that we have in place. I don't have to impugn any particular individual, but the process in place does not lend itself uh, to responding in a way that I think is helpful. And what gotcha. what what happens? I've got a there's a political um, uh, consultant or a, an um, an advisor that works for our Georgia Baptist Mission Board. He's uh, sort of the state version of the ERLC, and he engages a lot with our legislators. He, he coined a phrase that, unfortunately, sometimes people don't see the light until they feel the heat. And I do think that, yeah, I'm glad if they're making a decision that backs away from an, uh, what I think is uh, an unwise, unhealthy partnership with Guidepost Solutions. I am grateful for that. But I think we should that 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 um, gratitude is mitigated with concern that it took financial pressure, and the unprecedented action of two state conventions saying that they were going to um, reallocate or redesignate 
uh, their cooperative program funds. It just shouldn't take that much pressure uh, to get leaders to to respond. So another one of the issues that is uh, one that good folks are disagreeing about, who both affirm the, the Baptist faith and message, is the the nature of the Baptist faith and message uh, when it comes to uh, Southern Baptist cooperation, particularly women pastor issue, obviously is is a, a keystone part of that discussion. Um, on the on the one hand, the framers said, "Hey, it was never meant to to be a, a creed." Uh, but it also was, wasn't meant to be meaningless either. So h- how would you describe the nature of uh, uh, the Baptist faith and message 2000, how it should function in Southern Baptist life? Yeah, uh, by our very own documents. If you read the way that it's worded in our own constitution, Article 3, which sets the parameters of uh, friendly cooperation, that's the phrase that we use in friendly cooperation uh, with the SBC, it is explicit that full affirmation of the Baptist faith and message it is not required to be considered in full cooperation. That's black ink on white paper that you don't have to affirm the Baptist faith and message. You do have to have a faith and practice that is closely aligned with the Baptist faith and message. I believe as the convention is autonomous in its own sphere, and I know you know this, our listeners probably do today, but your church is autonomous, your association is autonomous, your state or regional convention is autonomous, the SBC is autonomous. And the SBC operating within the sphere of its own autonomy has the right to interpret its own governing documents to determine which of those violations or variances from the Baptist faith and message does it believe at that time qualify as no longer being closely aligned with the Baptist faith and message. So I think that's an interpretive issue. Let me give you a little bit of history here. I was serving as EC chairman in 2019 when a uh, Referral came from the Birmingham Convention that we amend the Baptist faith and message to insert the words and function. You know, that particular uh, Mm -hmm. uh, part of the BFM that the office of pastor is limited to men. This would have said the office and function of pastor uh, is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. I was not in favor uh, of that at the EC level simply because I felt we were dealing with an organizational issue, and I was not in favor of amending the confessional statement uh, to deal with an organizational issue. I also thought that uh, there was clarity already. This was my view at the time, that there was already clarity in the Baptist faith and message in our governing documents about female pastors. I'm talking about female senior pastors. In the work, however, of the credentials committee that followed that, uh, it became obvious to me that there were key leaders in the SBC who did not hold the view that I thought we had. And they felt that a a female senior pastor was a matter of local church autonomy. I agree it's a matter of local church autonomy. Uh, We don't have the right to tell a church they cannot hire a a female senior pastor. But again, the SBC, being autonomous in its own sphere, maintains unto itself the right to say you can hire who you want. And if you want Sister Sally uh, to be your uh, senior pastor, you can keep her. But we reserve the right to say that puts you out of fellowship with the SBC. So I began to realize through the work of the Credentials Committee at that time that there was not the clarity from a practical perspective uh, that I thought that we had. Therefore, I am in favor of Mike Law's amendment, uh, proposed amendment, that we amend the Constitution, Article 3, uh, to provide clarity on this issue. I'll, I'll add one more thing to this discussion. Uh, I am such a congregationalist. I believe that the power is ultimately vested, in, in the case of the convention, it's ultimately vested in the messengers 
of the convention. So one reason I did not and still do not um, uh, desire to amend the BFM on this point is because you can amend the Baptist faith and message in a single simple majority vote in one year, but you have to take a two-thirds majority in two successive years to amend the Constitution. That being a higher parliamentary threshold, I think it's a clearer statement and gives more Southern Baptists ample time to uh, insert their voices and involvement into this. And at the end of that process, if the Constitution is amended, uh, as I think that it should be, uh, then that's just a real clear message, both to our leaders as well as to the churches of the convention. No, that's helpful. What What would you say when it comes to Mike Law's uh, amendment? Um, as it relates to, there's a, we all know a, a lot of good Southern Baptist brothers who are pastoring churches that are in the midst of reform uh, or whatever you want to call it. They've been called to a church that may be dually aligned. They've been called to a church that may have a, a um, children's pastor who's a woman that they call a children's pastor. Um, and they agree with the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Um, but they're and they're moving their church. But as you know, that happened overnight. You know, do we want to remove those people uh, from Southern Baptist life? You know, how, how do you see those those situations playing out in, in the yeah. midst of uh, that? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's part of the part of the benefit of the standing credentials committee that you're not just automatically removed. There's a process that you go through. There's dialogue that can go on between uh, uh you know, the convention leadership, in this case, that would be the credentials committee, ultimately EC uh, leadership as well as they act on that on behalf of the convention between annual meetings. So the dialogue that could happen between convention leadership and that local church, I think, could flesh a lot of that out. If if you apply this to just a local local church, personal discipline issue, discipline of a member, if you know of an issue going on with a member of your church and they are struggling to come into a sense of, I'm speaking on a personal level, they're, they're struggling to come into um, you know, full sanctification on an issue to be where the church would require its members to be if there's a church covenant or something like that. I think Christian compassion and common sense would say, obviously, you're going to work with that person who is in agreement with where you are, and that's where they're trying to head but they're doing their best to move in that direction versus someone who says, whether it's an individual member of an individual church or a church in cooperation with the SBC, who says that may be where you are, but that's not where we are. And that's not where we're headed or where we're going to be. Those are just two different issues, of course. And I think that can be fleshed out in the dialogue that happens through the credentials committee uh, inquiry process. Now, that's helpful. You know, one of the things that that's been raised, uh, and you kind of you spoke to it a little bit earlier, has been the name calling. Um, I, I I think there's a lot of folks that would agree that um, when someone raises a concern about a particular issue, that they're labeled in a certain way. Uh, you yeah. referenced situation in Florida, um, but then they, the same people say we agree with that, but we also think that side maybe doesn't understand when they. You know, just some of the things that that have been raised about this is such an unusual situation that we need to run, you know, after the first year bar and the, uh, you know, abuse task for all that kind of stuff. Um, they are, you know, or these people, they were motivated by just money, you know, or just pressure or just, you know, those kinds of things where it feels like um, 
the the accusation seem to be going bo- be unfair on both sides. Is that fair, or how would you how would you see it coming from the other side towards that side? Does that make sense? Yeah, what I'm talking about are decisions that have been made and processes. I'm not calling an individual person some name. I'm not saying this person doesn't care about the abuse of children. I'm not saying that they're a liberal. I'm not saying that they're a heretic. In fact, the day that my candidacy was announced, I was I felt honored and as a brother in Christ obligated to call Dr. Barber and let him know that I was uh, announced as a candidate, express my love for him, uh, my appreciation for him and his ministry, uh, committed to him and to the Lord Jesus on that phone call that I would not disparage him, his person, his character, his integrity. But we had a different approach. And I would be talking about those differences in approach. And I know sometimes that if you're the one who has taken that approach, that may uh, that may feel personal. But it's one thing to say, I believe this was an unwise decision, or I would lead in a different direction. I think this is unfortunate. It's a whole other thing to say that this person doesn't care about the molestation of children, or that they are a liberal, or that they don't love the Bible. Um, For example, as I understand it, I think that Dr. Barber would take a different position procedurally on how to address this egalitarianism issue. Uh, I believe that we should leave the Baptist faith and message alone, uh, pass Mike Law's amendment this year, ratify it the next year. Um, Bart has put out on Twitter that he favors something that's more of a systemic overhaul uh, of all of our governing documents looking at the Baptist faith and message. Um, I disagree with that. But I don't have to say that he doesn't care about the complementarianism, egalitarianism debate, nor do I have to accuse him of not being a complementarian. I believe his record on that personally as a pastor is fairly clear. So if we're talking about process and decision making, I think that that's fair to point out where we have distinctions, but to do that in a way that doesn't impugn a person's character. Sure. Well, Pastor Mike, I sure appreciate the time uh, uh, with us today on the Baptist 21 panel. Uh, and I'd like to thank everybody for joining us on the um, on the Baptist 21 podcast. Excuse me. I uh, hope to see everybody at the Baptist 21 lunch panel on Tuesday of the convention. Going to have great panelists, great discussion, and for the first time ever, Chick-fil-A. So, you know, you can't beat, uh, you can't beat that. For more information about that, go to Baptist21.com, and we hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, Baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, Baptist21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.